0: Hi, friends. Welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Chris Wilderbank. Chris is the executive director of Congregational Vitality and Intentional Discipleship, as well as the director of Young People's Ministries at Discipleship Ministries, which is a general agency of the United Methodist Church. He lives in Monument, Colorado with his wife and two kids. In this episode, Chris and I talk about his journey of growing up as a clergy kid, his experience as a youth minister in the local church and the road that led him to working in a United Methodist agency. At the time of this recording, Chris had just finished leading a massive effort that was Youth 2023 in Daytona Beach, Florida, which gathered hundreds of youth and young adults, youth leaders, and many others from across the United Methodist connection. All of this brought a different kind of energy to this conversation. Chris gets to sit in a seat where he is not only aware of the worldwide diversity of our denomination, but he also gets to see the ways that this season invites us as a church to do the hard work of discerning our identity as United Methodists. Chris speaks in a language of hope, even as he articulates the challenges that we face. This was a fun and insightful interview. So you know what to do, grab that notebook that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great interview with Chris Wilterdick. Chris Wilterdick, how are you doing today, my friend?
1: Derek, I am very well, and it is so good to be here with you. Oh
0: man, I am so excited to have you on the podcast, and uh, I think I feel like it's going to be a bit of different energy that you're going to bring. Because um, most of the folks that I'm talking to on the podcast are used to working with um, what I sometimes call in campus ministry world real adults, um, <laughs> which is insulting. Realizing that, but I'm you know your work with young people in particular. Um, I think it's it's super important. That's how I met you, um, the Division of Ministries of Young People through Discipleship Ministries. Um, but I, I really feel like you're going to bring a different angle and different edge to our conversation on the of the Conference. So with all that said... Chris, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, I know little bits and pieces about your life. I know that you live in Colorado, 7,000 feet above sea level, and you are uh, living your best life at at the time of this recording in August, and you don't need to repeat anything else about it. (laughs) We know it. We get it. Thanks. But how how did you become a United Methodist Christian? How has God's provenient grace moved in your life to bring you
1: into our church? All right. Um, thank you for asking that question, actually. Um, so I, I'm a preacher's kid. I, I suppose I'll start there. So, you know, generally we go one of two ways. And it's either like deep into the church or like as far away as we can possibly get. And I did a little bit of both of those things, actually. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, when, when I grew up... Um, so my, my dad um, was, was the one who was involved in ministry and he had a position at Dakota Wesleyan University, which is in Mitchell, South Dakota, uh, home of the world's only corn palace, which you, you don't need to go see. But you can pull it up on, you know, whatever search engine you want to use and see what it looks like. Um, and so I grew up, uh, you know, there kind of in a, a small Midwestern town. Uh, And moved to the Denver area when I was in middle school and kind of had this big moment where all of a sudden there were as many kids in the middle school and high school where I was going to live in Denver as there were in the town that I had moved from. And socially, that was very intimidating for me. So the place that I ended up finding connection was church. I was super duper active in uh, youth ministry when I was growing up Uh, in between sixth grade and 12th grade. I was at St. Andrew United Methodist, uh, which was in the Mountain Sky Conference, um, uh, which at the time would have been known as the Rocky Mountain Conference. Um, And then in college, just kind of disappeared from the faith landscape for a little while. So that's something that you and I have never talked about because of your life in campus ministry and my Absolute lack of any church anything when I was in my undergrad years. Um, It happens to more more
0: PKs than we know. It does.
1: So so after graduating high school, uh, I was an exchange student to Brazil uh, for a year. I qualified as a Rotary International exchange student. And when I was down there... um, there is a bit of a Methodist presence, but it, it's it's far behind um, Brazilian Catholicism. Um, so I got to meet a lot of Catholic folks, and I actually made some really good friends with Mormon missionaries that were down there because uh, those were the other Americans that I could connect with and speak English with instead of tripping over Portuguese all the time. Um, and then when I came back, started my undergrad work and was uh, an English teacher. And while I was um, while I was teaching English, I started to get you know, kind of drawn back into some church things. And I was actually in a Stephen ministry training. Uh, If you're not familiar with Stephen ministry, uh, it is uh, probably not best classified as counseling, but really it's like one-on-one support for uh, people that uh, are looking to provide some congregational care. Um, And usually it's people that are much older than either of us that do it. Uh, And so, I thought, well, man, there's young people that need folks to be able to talk with as well. So I'm going to do it and see what goes on. I happened to be in that training with a associate pastor from another United Methodist Church uh, that was kind of in my area. And she was taking the training in order to be able to start a Stephen ministry at at her church. And uh, throughout the course of that, it ended up that their church was hiring a youth minister. And she didn't want to steal me away from where I was or, you know, mess up my professional plans or anything. But she said, you know, I, you really should think about ministry because I see a lot in you. Uh, and so if you ever cross paths with Reverend Pam Rowley, who is currently a DS in New Mexico, uh, she will, she will claim me, right? She will own me ah, Yeah. <laughs> as the person that really kind of helped to uh, define the call that I I wound up on. So ended up applying for that was a local church youth minister for uh, 11 years at saint luke's and highlands ranch before i started my work with uh, the general agencies of the united methodist church and just have kind of never looked back since
0: okay so we're, we're gonna take some steps back because let's um I'm, I'm curious i recognizing that i mean we're all on our journeys uh preachers kids pastors kids are definitely on their journeys
1: mm-hmm.
0: looking back um you are you are solidly inside of the ministry and institution of the church do you ever look back on sort of coming through you know high school into college taking taking a break from church if you will do you ever look back and sort of like man I wish I had I wish I had done that differently. Or is it more like, I'm glad I went that way because that way taught me things or a little bit of both.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, Well, are are we okay to get really personal here for a little bit? uh, Yeah, come through. Come on. Okay, very good. So here we go. Uh, My dad had to surrender his credentials when I was in eighth grade uh, because of things. And I'm not going to go like way down into the road of what those things were, but um, when you have formative years, right, when we're talking youth ministry, young adult ministry, um, there are, you know, situations you find yourself in where you sort of start to look at church leaders and almost have them on a pedestal of some kind, um, which isn't a really healthy thing to do, right? If, yeah. if, if anybody's involved with a congregation and, and you're there because, you know, the pastor is just all the way up here, right? Like they, they do everything right. They're incredible all the time listen, nobody can be perfect all the time. And, mm-hmm. uh, in eighth grade, I had one of those moments because of what my family had to go through that the pedestals all kind of came crashing down. So we got into this really almost deeper than you should do with an eighth grade conversation in my family mm-hmm. about, you know, do, do we stay at this church? Um, you know, is it still good for me and for my brothers and, 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 Uh, you know, for my mom, if we're going to stay active, I know we got friendships and relationships there, but is that the right thing to do for us? You know, sort of developmentally and socially and knowing that my dad couldn't be around there anymore. Um, It was very, very interesting. We ended up deciding to stay. um, And I'm glad that we did, uh, to be honest with you. It it really showed me the power of uh, what a grace-filled community can be like, because I, I, I did not experience any real negative side effects from the process that my dad had to go through or the, or the choices that the congregation was having to make related to him. You know, for for me and for my brothers, it really continued to just be this grace-filled and forgiving and welcoming space and you know, it it really formed quite a bit of who I am. Um at the same time, that time away is really beneficial. Um I'm not going to say everybody should take a gap year from the church because uh, that would be absolutely antithetical to all of the work that I do. Um, mm. But you and I probably both know people who have just never really escaped the walls of the church yeah. um, to see what else is out there and, and to, to get a better sense and a better scope of what the world is dealing with. With or what people are dealing with across different cultures and communities, especially ones that would never cross the threshold of your church. Yeah. Uh, So for that, I'm very grateful. Wow.
0: Thanks for going there, Chris. Yeah. Um, That's so, that's a part of our story that often doesn't get told that um, our experience in church regardless of the denomination, but particularly growing up in church, our experiences are often um, determined by the actions of others and the actions on those, on those actions, right? Mm-hmm. And so grateful for a congregation that you and your family still felt like you could be a part of um, and recognizing that, yeah, uh, I personally did not, Take that, you know, gap year from church, and at times I wonder would I have been a better campus minister if I had. Hmm. Um, that's
1: a different podcast for a different. Yeah, day. that's several episodes in itself, I suppose.
0: So take me more into the the transition of finding yourself back in church, and what were the things? Who were the people? Um, what were the, what what were the catalysts that gave you the sense that this is a space I needed to be back in?
1: Oh man. Yeah. That's a big question. We'll we'll probably have several takes on this one and see where it goes. Yeah. All right. So tying a couple of pieces together here related to education and life in the church. Um, So came back undergrad, English education, I got into that for a couple of reasons. One of them was I thought uh, how important it was to help young people be great at critical thinking, um, to be able to read text and read subtext and learn clues from the context and and you know the perspective that a piece is going to have because this is where the author comes from. Uh, this is the audience that they're trying to write to and connect with, those kinds of things. And I, I began to extrapolate that a bit onto my experiences of church stuff where uh the church that i grew up in really encouraged you know both using your head and your heart right for for lack of any better terms that i can pull off the top of my head right away Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um and, and so the the concept of being a thinking christian was really important for me to start to be able to live into um that you know God doesn't ask you to just shut off logical parts of your brain. God asks you to explore deeply uh, what is going on in your community, what's going on in yourself, um, and recognize that there's an incredible ability that we have to kind of come alongside God and partner up in transformation. And for young people, uh, one of the reasons that I specifically sort of got focused in in that area of ministry, Uh, has to do with i think their their spiritual gift of clarity um and and i think you know what i mean when i say that right where it just is young people have this incredible ability to look at something and say it really shouldn't be this way right Mm -hmm. this is not just yeah um whereas we get a little bit older we start to see things uh a little bit more on a spectrum perhaps Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. or we stop seeing the things that are unjust because we're just used to them and so trying to connect that ability to be a thinking Christian with this powerful ability to see things that are not just and, and connect with people that wanted to transform themselves and transform the world really was what pulled me into ministry. Hmm. And just curious, were there people, were there
0: people that along your journey sort of, sort of like the, 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 who's now the woman who's now a DS? Um, were there yep. other people who really kind of spoke into Chris's life and sort of called you to make some specific decisions towards ministry?
1: Oh, I think so. I, I mean, I, I would also lift up um, Janet Forbes, Reverend Doctor Janet Forbes, mm. if. She doesn't get too embarrassed with adding additional titles <laughs> to her name. Um, I, I mean, wh- when I got hired into being a full-time youth director, and, and I should say I'm still a lay person as well, right? Like, um, I was a lay person when I started leading uh, in the church, and I'm, I'm a lay person now, and I think there's tremendous gifts um, that lay people and clergy bring to the life of the church.
0: The 98%. We're here for it, bud. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Um. But, but I was incredibly fortunate um, to have a senior pastor that, that saw potential in me as I got hired because I was hired as a youth director at the age of 24, um, which is not mm-hmm. all that far removed from mm-hmm. either college years or older high schoolers that I would have been leading at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but Janet's Janet's leadership style, um, her ability to kind of be a, a peaceful leader and a connector, Um really was influential for me in, in my ministry and and also being part of a denomination that lifts up um, female clergy, right? I know that there's denominations out there that don't recognize women in leadership in the church nearly as well as the United Methodist Church does. Um, and we certainly can continue to do so, right? In in all sorts of ways, but grateful to be able to serve with uh, a, a church staff that was led by uh, Janet. Hmm. Um, Mike Ratliff would be another one that I would certainly lift up. Um, yeah. I I met Mike when I was a youth myself in high school, and uh, he was one of the folks that really opened my eyes to just how broad the connection of the United Methodist Church is. Um, I think one of the experiences that we all have as we mature in faith um, is recognizing that the church is larger than the building that we attend on a Sunday or whatever day worship happens to be, you know? Right, right. Um, one of the beautiful parts of the United Methodist Church and one of the reasons I continue to be United Methodist is how connectional we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike really kind of opened the door to national and, you know, really worldwide connections that I continue to live into today.
0: You know, often when I'm talking to clergy, not just on this podcast, but in general, you know, we get to this place where we talk about Their call to ministry. And there's this, I think, implicit expectation that um, our clergy are not just doing jobs that are called pastor, um, but that there is something else. And in fact, we expect our clergy to have a moment or a set of moments (laughs) where they hear this, this sort of voice or this leading or this clarity that sort of locks in their soul and says, you are called to this. Did you ever have that? Um.
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A a series we could talk about Um, Mm -hmm. a moment where the clouds parted and the light came down and the choir started singing. No, Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely Mm -hmm. not. Um, I, I also think that, that it's always a process. I, to, to be honest with you, I, I think mm-hmm. an interesting part of the way I understand my calling and, and my role in the church is that I'm always answering that call. Um, that, that when I wake up, uh, it, honestly, so this would be a marriage parallel here too, a little bit. My, my, like I said, my wife and I will have been married for 16 years. Um, and I wake up and I choose her, right? I, I choose her, our, our relationship every day. And, and I choose to to prioritize that and value that and do what I can to maintain that relationship. Um, and honestly, that's the same thing I do with God. Um, and, and I would hope people continue to do that with God as well. But it's not just a one time. I said yes to God once, and I'm still doing the same thing that I did 20 years ago because mm-hmm. I change, my understanding of God changes. And you mm-hmm. know what? The call changes too, so if you're trying to like figure out what your call was and you look back to 20 years ago to what you were called to do, and you're trying to do that same thing and you're feeling frustrated, well, no wonder you're feeling frustrated about it because you're in a different place and God might be calling you to, to bigger things or to different things. And, and it's okay to continue to listen and try to answer. So take me on that journey a little slower from
0: being a youth director for 11 years? Is that what I heard you say?
1: In a row at the same church.
0: Oh my. Oh my.
1: <laughs> I know. I'm here to break the myth of, you know, your youth director flips over as much as your worship leader. Like, <laughs> there really are some longer term folks in there. <laughs> so clearly, working at a local church
0: is a different kind of space and energy from working in a United Methodist agency. And so, one, I'd just love to hear that journey of going from local church to agency, but I'd also love to hear of some of the differences um, that you've experienced, some of the things maybe that you miss um, mm-hmm. about local church, but some of the things that really excite you about the institution. And I've asked you a ton of questions in one question, so we'll pick up as
1: we go, so some of the things that excite me about the institution. That's hilarious.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, all
1: right. So a little bit of the journey. Um, so one of, one of the tough parts. Okay. So, so most of the ministry that I have led has been, uh, west of the Mississippi, and in communities that are mostly in a post-Christian culture, okay? Uh, If you have never served outside of a church that is in the South Central or the Southeast, as you head North and as you head West, churches are smaller. Um, They have less financial resources and their church staff do not get paid nearly as much uh so if we do want to talk a little bit about some of the call story i knew that i was called into youth ministry and and ministry with young adults and and helping to lead those young people in the community that i was in ministry in you price yourself out of being in that ministry because if you got ordained there's churches that need you to organize the life of the church um right, as a right. senior pastor and mm-hmm. and not do that thing that you were called to Um, so that was a hard part of my story, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I would love teachers and those involved in ministry with college students, ministry with young people, um, to be able to make a living on it without having to do two or three different jobs to be able to make ends meet. Um, and I know that might be a little bit pie in the sky, but, but really, you know, as I think about looking ahead to stuff, most people that are called into ministry with young people are going to have to be bivocational or, or have multiple sources of income in, in order to make it happen. And honestly, a lot of churches will staff differently and, and run children's ministries, young people's ministries with volunteers um, from within their congregation, which is fine, too. Um, it just is a big shift in the mindset from where the church has been or tried to be right for like mm-hmm. the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, all right. So maybe by year eight of being at the local church, um, I went through many seasons of life. I got engaged. I got married. I bought my first house. Um, and Emily and I found ourselves pregnant with our first kid. And I was looking at the schedule that I was needing to keep at the local church in youth ministry and saying, I can't do all of this. Um, So I need to figure something else out. I ended up going back to school and pursuing a master's degree. So um, there's a Jesuit school in Denver called Regis University. Uh, And I got accepted to a master's of science and organizational leadership uh, program there. And so my master's degree is in organizational leadership and project management. And that is sort of what opened the door for me to be able to join um, opportunities with the agencies. So I mentioned Mike Ratliff is one of the folks that, that I would name as, as formative. And part of that is he ended up being my former boss as well. So um, I want to say this was back in maybe 2011 or 2012. Uh, Mike Ratliff was the Associate General Secretary for the Division on Ministries with Young People and which is part of discipleship ministries at the time would have been known as the board of discipleship the general board of discipleship. Uh, And he decided to decentralize from Nashville. So he, he eliminated two full time in Nashville positions in order to hire one part time person in each jurisdiction in the United States. Um, And so when that happened, I applied for it uh, and I ended up going part time local church, youth ministry, part time, serving the jurisdiction the western jurisdiction for resource and connectional work uh, and i did that for uh two or three years before my direct supervisor who is a, an excellent guy named hank hilliard um, who as we're recording is at franklin first united methodist church in franklin tennessee um he he decided to return to local church uh ministry life and i applied for that position and that meant moving my family from uh denver where we were living to nashville to take on that opportunity and i i became full-time as the director of uh program development for young people in the united states i think was my title at the time uh and mm. i did that for mm. um uh boy several years and I, i've been part of agency life since then mm-hmm. um, i know you asked about some of the differences between local church and agency life yeah yeah so let, let's dive in there unless there's any follow-ups you no want let's to. go let's okay. go yeah Um, All right. Things I miss about the local church. Uh, I miss being able to see the direct impact of my ministry. Um, And I miss that a lot. Um, Being a part of an agency uh, and a connectional church means that we do a lot of listening. We host a lot of conversations. We really try to uh, be strategic with resources that we create and, and worship series that we help to write and pieces that we put out there to support local churches because, I mean, listen, like the the local church is the heartbeat of the United Methodist Church, right? Nothing exists unless local United Methodist churches are healthy. Yeah, um, yeah. And so everything that we do is, is geared to help them um, be vital and be successful and and for ministry leaders to feel supported um, in, in what they're trying to do. Um, the thing is, we don't always get to see the impact right away, right? If, if you're on a giant boat and it's got a rudder that's, you know, this big, it's kind of tiny. And you turn that rudder by one degree, eventually you, you start to see the ship move a different direction, but it's a delayed kind of a response, yeah. right? And, and yeah. that's really different than being on a journey with, I don't know, 20 families as they're doing confirmation and getting to know those families and seeing a young person, you know, take on the mantle of membership in the church. I, I miss that. I miss that a lot. I do not miss uh, doing pumpkin patch fundraisers. I mean, shout out to everybody who's leading pumpkin patches. I know it's coming up, but I don't miss that. Um, Mm. Kept me out of youth ministry.
0: Not going to (laughs) lie. Kept me right out of there.
1: I Ah! mean, listen, we all do fundraising in different ways and it's part of the deal, but oh man, pumpkin patch at my church. That was like a sacred cow. Like, oh man, was that a thing? Um, Let's see. The uh, This is a side effect of COVID, I think, but I mean, I, I do miss being on a church staff and being able to interact uh, in real time with people uh, and in ways that, again, kind of serve congregational needs. Um, the needs that an agency is able to address really are usually such big picture things um, that I have to remind myself about, you know, the potential for the personal impacts that some of the work that we do can have. Um, it, it's a unique space to be in. And and I would imagine actually Derek, that you see some of this mm-hmm,
0: because of mm-hmm. your
1: role with digital campus ministry and networking campus ministers together. Yeah. You put programs together, you create some really awesome and innovative stuff. You don't necessarily always get to see the fruit of that ministry come to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no, that's, that's a, that, Thinking, trying to think about the long game of ministry and trying to, therefore, put things in place for the long game, you know, essentially means that there's going to be outcomes that you don't get to see, don't get to experience and revisions and iterations that you're not included in. Um, Yep. Yeah, Chris, that that really resonates um, with me. But I gotta say, like just a few weeks ago, you—I know you didn't put it on by yourself. Clear, that's clear. But you—you you led an event for the denomination called Youth 2023. It was in Daytona Beach, Florida, and it was incredible. And I got I'm to so play a little, good time. I got to play a little bitty role in it, but it. it it really was incredible and so um I'm, I'm, i recognize that there there are obviously things that you miss about local church ministry and that work on the ground but i'm curious like on this side of putting on youth 2023 and and you know doing that from the seat that you sit in at discipleship ministries um what are the wins like what are the wins okay. of ministry Uh, looking like for you, you know, across your tenure at Discipleship Ministries, but even now, and and feel free to tell us a little bit about Youth 2023 as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I mean, so if if people aren't familiar with the youth event, um, it's a denominational youth event. It started in 1988, like a good Methodist thing. It happens every four years, Gotta do it every four years. If you don't, like what's happening? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and oddly enough, with the timing of COVID, it didn't throw off the timing of the youth event because we had one in 2019 in Kansas city and then came back and did one in 23 in Daytona beach, Florida. Um, so, you know, that that's one of the rare opportunities when there is some direct interaction between the ministry that discipleship ministries creates, uh, and, um, It includes leaders as well as church members and other participants, right? Uh, Most of the work that Discipleship Ministries gets to do uh, really is to support the leadership of the church in their discipleship, right? So all of the goals that we have uh, as an agency are in support. Uh, And challenge of what discipleship looks like at the local church. So, we talk a lot about intentional discipleship systems. Uh, We talk about the need to be able to, um, you know, ground discipleship efforts in um, anti racist approaches, uh, recognizing that that's kind of a continued sin that the church and uh, the United States gets to continue to wrestle with. Um, We talk a lot about vitality and the things that we can do to uh, lift up church leaders and again, make them feel both supported and challenged. Uh, and, and here's some of the language that I use for that, where, um, you know, if, if all we do is get supported, um, we have a tendency to become complacent or comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if all we do is get challenged, we get burnt out. and you need to be able to have, an accountable group with you, you know, if that's like a clergy cohort or, you know, stuff that's organized within a conference or a district or things that come from us at, at the agency level um, where you have opportunities to feel supported in the ministry that you're doing, as well as um, challenged to kind of chase after John Wesley's idea of Christian perfection, right? Where we may not ever be perfect, but that's okay. That does mean that we still can be better tomorrow than we were today. Mm-hmm. Um and hearing those kind of challenges to help the United Methodist Church figure out who it is again, uh, yeah. I think are super duper important uh, in this season of ministry. So I, I know I talked kind of in a big circle, but to come back to the youth event, you know, that youth event is an opportunity for young people to broaden their understanding of the church, uh, to find out that they are part of a connectional system, right? That to be United Methodist is to have this incredible network of churches and opportunities that are just out there waiting to be able to support uh, and, and help develop you as a Christian, right? Um, and, and I love being able to see that stuff. Um, I also think it's just a genuinely important time for people to be able to figure out how to come back together uh, because with COVID lockdowns and everything else, as weird as it felt going into those lockdowns, um, it feels just as weird coming out of them. All right. So the youth event coming together again, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a part of a group of 2,500 people for the first time in three years um, feels weird to come back into after being out of it for so long. Yeah. Um, yeah. And our church has to figure out how to come together again. And I mean that literally and sort of metaphorically, right. That one of the other big things that's on the calendar for next year is general conference. Um, and we're going to have a whole bunch of people that have not been in the same space for eight years and perhaps have forgotten how to pray for each other or how to be in holy conferencing or, or how to do those things well. And so I think it takes, again, that that support and that challenge to help us create these spaces where we do come together again and remind us of the connection that we have. Hmm.
0: It really was Um a great event, and i um was on a call uh, with you know a few bishops and other agency leaders, folks who had um either been in the room or saw footage of what was happening in the room from others and just the the testimony and witness of hope mm-hmm. for the church that youth twenty twenty three I think gave so many of us Um, and also I think that the youth actually had a good time. So (laughs) I think that they really uh, engaged. And I think that many of them would say that their, uh, their witness of Jesus in their life was deepened because of the time that they spent in that space. Um, And again, you did this from the place This event was put on by an agency. It wasn't one local church. It wasn't even an annual conference. It was one of our general agencies um, endeavoring to create a space to resource and to encourage both youth and youth workers. And one of the conversations that I think probably has been um, taking place historically in our denomination is the role of agencies. Sure, um, and the validity of the agencies. Um, I'm curious how you see the role of the agencies in the United Methodist Church, and what you wish that those of us on the ground knew that you that you know the things that you get to see
1: from the seat that you're sitting in. It it's almost countercultural right now to be able to recognize that we can make a bigger impact when we're coordinated and we work together. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I say that just because we find ourselves in a time and a place where there's a lot of like institutional distrust um, where we're coming out of a season where there's like been a lot of inefficiencies and, and, and what can feel like a lot of red tape and um, struggles with the institution. Um, And part of my, vision and, and part of the vision of discipleship ministries and the other agency folks that I know um, are that you know we don't do what we do just for the sake of the institution being able to continue on as an institution uh, our hope through the ministry that we're providing and and hopefully through some of the leadership that we're offering up is that we can really recapture what it is to be a movement again um, The the Methodist church started as a movement, right? And you know, honestly, if we wanted to like pump up campus ministries and ministries with young people, that movement was led by young adults. Say that. Say it uh, all the time, right? I mean, that that's where the energy came from. And there was energy because there was a societal need or a cultural need that was identified by young people. And they were able to get organized and coordinated enough together that they could make a difference and make a movement in order to meet those needs. Um, If you want to talk about some of like my fears for the institution uh, of the church or of the agencies, um, I would certainly have some fears that, you know, that the agencies or the church itself has lost the ability to see the needs that are out there that need to get met. And instead just kind of continue to try to exist as an institution um, I don't think that's the case. I mean, really since like 2019 and 2020, uh, really every agency has gone through like massive restructures. So, you know, if, if there's like, you know, rumors or conversation about there, about like how the agencies have all this money and they've got all these people and they've got all this, like, I'm here to tell you that that's really not very true. Um, I can, I can tell <laughs> yeah. you that we, we, we've really, you know, like a lot of local churches have had to do make very difficult and very strategic choices about what our staff team looks like Um, and uh, the initiatives that we want to try to tackle and take on with limited people and limited hours and limited resources and those kinds of things. So uh, if you think about the agencies as like, you know, these um, fairy tale things that just have unlimited money and that's not who we are. Um, Might be kind of nice at some point to, to have a year or two like that. That'd be all right with me, but it's not where we are right now. Um, I, I do think that the, the future of agencies in the United Methodist church, um, really is dependent upon grabbing on again to that idea of movement, as opposed to the idea of institution. Um, in institutions do not need to exist for the sake of an institution existing. They need to be able to exist to, to meet a need and to be nimble enough, um, to meet the needs. And when there's local churches, when there's young people, when there's campus ministries um, that are identifying needs, the agencies should be able to respond to those needs in a reasonable amount of time in order to support folks with what they're trying to tackle and take on. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, th- this isn't my agency, but um, I like uh, the, where Westpath is, uh, the folks that lead the investments for the United Methodist Church. One of the stories that like <clears throat> is really interesting for me to be able to kind of share and tell is about the collective bargaining power that United Methodists have because they pool all of those, you know, apportionment dollars and retirement funds into some big funds that are managed from a faithful perspective. And so if the church at something like General Conference says we're divesting from fossil fuels, like we're not supporting that industry that that does a whole lot more than me chris saying yeah i'm you know i've got my own stock portfolio and i'm not putting anything into fossil fuels hmm. all of a sudden you've got you know 16 million people's worth of funds that are not going towards fossil fuels anymore um if you don't if, if you want to make sure that you're supporting um, organizations that pay living wages and have good human rights records the the finances of the church can do that in a bigger way than I can do individually. And I do think that that plays out across a whole bunch of different opportunities. Like there's stuff that we can do because we are connected and we pool our resources together that we could never do if we were congregational
0: only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. So spot on. So spot on. So uh, just to ping back to something that you said you know, 2019, 2020, most of the agencies went through a reorganization in anticipation of not knowing what was going to happen mm-hmm. next you know, in the life of our denomination. So that changed your role
1: at Discipleship Ministries as well, right? It did. So in in the midst of that, Uh, I was part of an office unit that was led by Mike Ratliff as the Associate General Secretary um, for Young People's Ministries. And in that restructure, um, what was a separate division became combined with several other teams. Uh, And so uh, now our group is a part of Congregational Vitality and Intentional Discipleship, uh, our acronym, COVID, COVID perfect timing for what happened in 2019 and
0: 2020.
1: Wow. I had not, I had not done that math until I, 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 Tell that joke every time I do an interview and it never gets old to me. Um, but yes, <laughs> CVID is what we go by. So Congregational Vitality and Intentional Discipleship is the team that I'm a part of now. Um, and we kind of have a player coach model where, um, like I said in my introduction, I'm the director of Young People's Ministries as well as the executive director for my team. Uh, so that means I get to you know strategically convene conversations and um, really try to be able to, to broker and be able to share tremendous resources that are out there across the denomination that are all, you know, specifically related to discipleship.
0: What is exciting you these days about the role that you're playing in the seat that you're sitting in?
1: What really excites me these days is the opportunity for identity work that our denomination gets to do, whether they like it mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I guess by that, I mean um, the, the disaffiliation, affiliation stuff, Uh, really affected different parts of the church in a very uneven way, right? Like if I was in a conference that there weren't that many disaffiliations, I may not have felt the impacts on relationships or on on ability to do ministry nearly as much as if I was in a conference that had a lot of disaffiliations or uh, has a process that hasn't completed yet, right? Like at the time that you and I are recording this, which is end of August, 2023, there are still conferences out there that have pending disaffiliations and are still, you know, feeling all of the lament uh, and pain of that process. And there's other conferences that are totally done with it and are excited about moving on to the next thing. So, so when I say identity work, um, I I think that the global Methodist church as um, a denomination that the UMC doesn't recognize yet um, has done a pretty decent job of, of trying to define who they are. Um, often I find a lot of that language, um, of the global Methodist church defining who they are, um, as opposition to who United Methodists are.
0: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
1: I would like the United Methodist church to be able to do some identity work, to be able to say, you know, th- this is just who we are. Um, a- and, dive in to the book of discipline, dive into the social principles and Hmm. say, this is the stuff that we say we believe. Is that really who we are? Hmm. And if so, let's all like kind of start to get on board with that and figure out what it means because we, we continue to have United Methodist churches that are in a couple of different buckets, right? Like some United Methodist churches are super excited to still be United Methodist and say, we're going to, take this bull by the horns and we're going to figure out all this new innovative stuff. And it's going to be amazing. And we're so happy we're United Methodist. And then we've got some other churches that are like, yeah, we couldn't afford to disaffiliate. And so we're still United Methodist too, but we need to know what that means for us. And those are important conversations to get to lean into. So I'm excited about the identity work that we get to do as a denomination to really define who we are and who we want to be as United Methodists um, and have the chance to lean into it a little bit. Right. And, and say, not only is this who we say we are, this is how it looks when we do those things. And this is how it looks when we live out the beliefs that we've said are really important to us. I I love being able to be in that seat. Mm. Let's take a quick break.
0: Chris, this podcast is called Bar of the Conference. It's about the stories that uh, General Conference delegates are taking with them into uh, the Bar of General Conference, Uh, the stories of those who um, serve the church in many different ways, those stories as well, and how all of these narratives are shaping who the United Methodist Church is becoming. And I think that a moment that has catalyzed um, a lot of who we're becoming was the special session of General Conference in 2019 where the traditional plan was passed. I think that that um, was a pivotal moment in the story of our church. So I'm just curious, um,
1: were were you at General Conference 2019? I was not. And I'm kind of grateful for that, to be honest with you, because yeah. I got to follow alongside folks without needing to be in the arena itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, um, <laughs> that was a pretty tremendous meeting and with the, with the passage of the traditional plan at that point, um, you know, it, it's an interesting time to be able to do some like alternative history thinking, because at the time, again, that was pre-COVID before anything happened and, and slowed up any other processes. Right. Like with the passage of that plan, um, a lot of folks that I knew were, were uh, very surprised and probably a little bit heartbroken about it. Uh, and I think almost the knee jerk reaction from a lot of more progressive churches were that, well, that means we better go figure something else out. Um, and then as COVID happened and lockdowns happened and general conference 2020 couldn't happen, um, all of a sudden it, it opened up these very interesting opportunities for where we actually do find ourselves, uh, where it ended up being more of the traditional churches. Uh, who ended up leaving and following their plan, leaving um, centrist and, and middle of the road and progressive churches to still kind of figure out what needs to be done uh, with the language that's in there. Because you know, one of the quirks, and I know most of the folks that you're gonna, uh, will be listening to the po- this podcast know the rules and everything anyway, right? But General Conference is the body that gets to speak on behalf of the United Methodist Church. And if there's changes that happen, they have to happen through that group. So for anybody on the outside looking in that's confused about where the United Methodist Church is or how it got itself here, um, it's hard to tell that story without talking General Conference and specifically talking General Conference 2019 because that was such a unique time where it was this special called session of it.
0: And your role, I mean, you interact with, individuals who represent the whole church and I know with uh with ministries of young people not just youth and young adults in the US but youth and young adults all over our global connection so did you have conversations with people across the spectrum on the other side of 2019 and 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 you know were they sort of asking like Chris, what just happened, and you're <laughs> trying to filter it through your assumption of where they are <laughs> like how how were those conversations
1: yeah, uh, I mean, I'm thinking way back here, but uh, you know just just like with any age group it it's really not fair to broad brush young people as being of one opinion about anything, right, like just as in any other generation, right. Right. We got people all over the place. Yeah. Um, and that's important to keep in mind. I, I I will say that, you know, depending on where the cultures that folks are coming from does inform a lot of how these conversations happen. So, so one of the more difficult ones um, and I still haven't found the right way to do it. So if, if we find the answer together through this podcast, I'm going to be eternally grateful, even more than I already am to you. Mm. Um, mm. But the The conversation about um, you know, some of the regionalization plans mm-hmm. uh, or or the ability to um, help the United States be able to make decisions that are more appropriate for the culture in the United States without affecting the whole church worldwide mm-hmm. is a really important conversation to be able to have. And one of the places that it always gets stuck is, that I think there is a shared understanding of wanting that um, independence or wanting the ability to make those choices. But there's also, and I'll just use the direct quote, these are not my words, but from many conversations that I've had, is that, yes, I understand that. I also want you to do it biblically. And then you have to ask what that means, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because there's assumptions. that we can bring to it that, that kind of is some coded language. Right. Um, but there's a really interesting dynamic where if you get into conversations with folks that are part of these decision-making bodies that are not from the United States, um, they, they, you know, just like they want for people in their own congregations, they would like the United Methodist church to be creating faithful Christians and faithful disciples and faithful witnesses. Um, But what that means and how that gets expressed can be really different depending on the culture that you're coming from.
0: Hmm. What has been your personal response to the last few years? Um, I mean, General Conference 2019 for sure, and then the annual conference season here in the U.S. right after that. That was a reaction to the passage of the traditional plan. Um, Started hearing things about protocol a little bit after that and then COVID um, and the postponement of general conference and then the postponement again and then the postponement again and the launch of the GMC and now disaffiliations. Um, How have you personally navigated these last few years within our denomination?
1: Uh, there's been some really hard times um, and, and really frustrating times for me personally. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that I really latch onto, whether, whether it's valuable or not, is um, this understanding that part of the Methodist story is wanting to be able to find third ways to stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That, that mm-hmm. you know, the, the culture that the Wesley brothers and, and the rest of the Holy Club and, and other folks in the beginning of the Methodist movement, you know, they, they found themselves in England uh, in a place where if you were too Protestant, you got killed. If you were too Catholic, you got killed. And it gave rise to this via media or a third way or this really interesting way of, of trying to be in the middle and holding this sort of radical center, for lack of a better word. And what I have experienced in the last personally in the last three or four years is watching choices that both extremes make. And in a weird way, the farther extreme, if you were looking at a spectrum on a straight line, right? Like the farther from the center that you get, the more extreme position you find yourself in, whether that's left or right in a weird way, the more you find yourselves acting like each other, <laughs> and mm. um, and and doing that from completely different logical and ethical and moral foundations, but the tendency to name call and to not listen and to force people to make decisions, and it it takes the straight line and it turns it into a circle where these people on the extremes meet each other in the way that they act, um, which has been really hard for me because I I truly try to hold the center super duper hard um I, I care about people and, and I care about the church and I, I care about people's chances to grow and and be included I care about people's um ability to to help remove barriers for other people uh, and, and to seek justice I, I I think that's just critical for the church and, and critical for us to be able to do ourselves and so you know for me it, it gets a little personally heartbreaking when I do find, people that uh, sometimes don't even want to choose to be in an extreme position, but because of choices that are made by the other extreme kind of moves where the middle ground is, right? Because even as I say that, and and would say that I try to hold the middle and sort of be radically centered, um, listen, if you're coming from very far right or very, very far left, my understanding of where the middle is might be really different than where your understanding of the middle is, you know?
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: And that's, that's personally been pretty tough because I, I, I have watched relationships get broken and fall apart around like one or two issues. And I hate that. Mm-hmm. that that's not how the church should be. That, that's not how human relationships should be. There shouldn't be one or two things that, that break apart a friendship or break apart a family or anything like that. Yeah, but we're yeah. living that right now. Right. How, how is um?
0: How's that? Is that happening at the agency level? Um, I guess is the question. Like, how is that reality of? You know, there's some of us who are caught in the middle, and there's some of us who are, you know leaning to one side or the other um, and then others of us who are doing the pulling, you know, from <laughs> either. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, yeah. and, um, and all of those are needed.
1: You yeah, know? Oh yeah. Like, yeah.
0: Like each of them has their place in the story and in the work.
1: Yeah. yeah. How's that impacting the work of the agency?
0: Uh,
1: so outside of the personal stuff on the agency level, uh, I think it really has informed a lot of the strategic choices um, that the agencies are trying to make uh, about um, what they're creating, uh, the conversations that they're bringing together, and, and how agencies can still offer resources or opportunities for conversation that are deeply rooted in Methodist faith or Methodist theology uh, and a Wesleyan approach to looking at things. Um, Knowing that there is this again big tent and and I love being part of the big tent um it, it's one of the reasons I continue to be United Methodist because I don't want to surround myself with people that just think like me and look like me and talk like me all the time i I need that diversity and and to celebrate the strength of that diversity yeah. Um, but yeah it it has forced the agencies I think to be uh very thoughtful and intentional and strategic about uh you know identifying who is gonna really tap into the resources that we create, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we know we can't be all things for all people, nor should we be all things for all people. Uh, But at least for our agency, when we're talking about discipleship, if we want to get very focused and say, listen, every church needs to have some kind of intentional discipleship system or intentional discipleship pathway, um, how do we support leaders with conversations and tools that they might be able to use that relate all of this stuff back to discipleship? right? Like all of these hard conversations are opportunities to grow in faith. It's not, it's not culture war stuff. And, and if the church gets into culture war stuff, it needs to be from the point of view that we're working alongside to, for that long arc of justice, right? Um, and, and so any, any time that political stuff or cultural stuff or these kind of things come up, um, I would hope at least for, from the things that people would experience from discipleship ministries, they would find pieces that help to find God in the conversation uh, or help to find opportunities to grow in the conversation and not be scared of talking about hard things. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to talk about hard things. We have to talk about things that we disagree about. Um, But we also need to invite God into those conversations and have opportunities to listen for what God and the spirit is saying in it. Um, Instead of me just saying, this is Chris. And here's, you know, from my position of power, uh, exactly what I think you should think. Mm
0: -hmm. I know y'all have done a little bit of work around this, but how, how do you think we should be talking to youth about what's happening in the church right now?
1: Yeah. uh, There is uh, some pretty great stuff. Actually it probably needs a bit of an update, but Scott Hughes wrote a series of resources called Courageous Conversations. Uh, which are available as free downloads from umcdiscipleship.org. Uh, they're around a variety of topics, but there was one specifically written after the special called general S- conference session in 2019. Uh, and we created a discussion guide for youth uh, in that same courageous conversation model. And, and that model is not necessarily about um, getting people to agree to an answer or being able to present like, this is really the way that you should be thinking. Uh, Rather, it's built around the ability for everybody to be able to raise concerns and ask questions um, and really train up groups uh, and congregations that use this stuff um, to be active and fully listening. Um, It's not to change your mind. It's not to change anybody's mind. It is to be able to sit around the, the same table and hear a perspective that's different from your own. Um, and then equip church leaders to be able to wrestle with that a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, my, my encouragement, and I know it's not easy. Um, but if you're at a church and you haven't talked about this with the young people that are part of your congregation, uh, you sure better, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, if they've done confirmation, they're members of your church and they can show up to a church meeting and vote. (laughs) <laughs> and mm-hmm. I would love them to be able to be informed voters um, and and help take on some of the mantles of leadership for the church. Um, I, I also think it's uncomfortable for some people, but um, again, back to the early pedestal, pedestal stuff we kind of talked about. Um, it's okay to let everybody know that your church is wrestling through this, right? Like we don't always have to look like we've got it all figured out. Um, young people – really, I think, value authenticity. And I think they also really value opportunities to to be a part of the decision-making process as opposed to just be handed, this is what our church chose to do around this particular issue. Yeah, that's helpful.
0: So Chris, we've got uh, General Conference 2020, which will take place in April and May of 2024 coming up. Are you as pumped up as I am? Actually, I am because that's my jam space. That is, <laughs> that is. um Yep.
1: And it's going to happen. And part of what I'm really excited about is, is like, it is going to happen. We've been waiting yeah. for this, right? Like it needs to happen. So I'm, I'm it needs to happen. Yeah. And what do you think
0: general conference should be about from your perspective, from your story and from the seat that you're sitting in? what what do you think needs to be considered that's on the table or not on the table yet?
1: Um, oh yeah, man. Well, <clears throat> I talked about that identity work earlier and I do think that this is an opportunity for some official identity work for the United Methodist Church. Um, I think that the energy that's around some of the regionalization plans um, deserves a lot of time and, and a lot mm-hmm. of, opportunities for people to kind of connect and and figure out what the impact of that might be um, for them. Because I I, honestly, I think some of that stuff could be really healthy. I mean um, we are, so like specifically from the division on ministries with young people, there'll be some legislation that's put forward um, that would rename that group into the young people's connectional network uh, and then frame the representative nature of that body uh, in a more equitable way across the regions of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So like, I'm excited about that stuff. I'm, I'm excited about some of the direction setting that we could get to do and some of the freedom that we might find there. Um, and so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to those conversations and hearing how that they, they play out. Um, I, I also think it's a tremendous opportunity to be able to hear storytelling from different parts of the world. Um, you know, it, it's one of the things that, Sometimes it's such a shame about general conference because there is so much work to be done. Um, and this one, right, because of the delays and, and all the, the legislation that's going to be there, um, there's a lot of legislative work that's going to have to get done um, in one way or another. And I hope that the relationships that can get formed in the midst of all of that work uh, let people have chances to hear stories about the impact that their churches are making, whatever part of the world that they've come from
0: and as an employee of an agency. How are you thinking about your role going forward? Um, we don't know what the United Methodist Church is gonna look like yeah. Um, you know, by the end of 2023 on the other side of General Conference, and even into 2028, but I, I think that we all trust that something <laughs> that's called the United Methodist Church will still be here. How do you think about your role in this time. And again, looking forward, mm-hmm. how does your role evolve?
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, in terms of the short-term stuff, right? Like I, I get to help organize the young people's address um, and help refine what that looks like and mm-hmm. and the vision that they might get to cast. I, I actually, the applications for that are still open for another week. So beginning of September, I have to review those that have come in. And I'm, I'm curious to get the pulse of the vision that young people want to help the the church set for its future. Um, in terms of, you know, like the way that my ministry might look or the way the agencies might look uh, I think I've learned to just not be that afraid about it um, because I've been around for a little while. I, I mean, yeah. if, if you're listening to this podcast and and if you've been in the same position that Derek's been in for a while, uh, talking about restructuring of agencies and what the institution needs to look like, that's not a new conversation, right? Like that's been since 2008, 2012, yeah. 2016. Um, and I'm, I'm not worried about change. I, am I, it, it's, it's needed. It, it, we're going to be in a new season of the life of the church. Do I want to still have a job? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> very much so. Uh, um, that would be a good thing. Yes, that would be, it would. Personally, that would be a great thing for me, um, <laughs> to, to be able to still continue to, you know, have health insurance for my kids and, and, yeah. um, support the church in the way that I do. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that, something that has happened to the agencies as they went through restructures and all these different kinds of conversations. Um, The people who are part of agencies in my experiences are very passionate about the United Methodist church and very excited for what it can become. Um, It is, I think perhaps like a little bit less territorial than maybe it was in the past. Um, Mm. There's really this shared understanding that, there's there's not a need for us to ever reinvent the wheel for anything. Rather, it, it, there's opportunities for us to be able to partner and and do some shared stuff and, you know, find new ways to help the United Methodist Church claim its identity for who it wants to be following General Conference 2024. So longer term, I mean, I, I do think that there's always going to be a place in a connectional church for agencies. Um, what those look like how big they are, what they're tasked with, how they receive apportionment dollars, um, by the book of discipline, you know, what they're expected to, uh, create or support. It's okay. Update that stuff. Um, if we're still doing things the way that they were written in 1968, uh, we're probably not doing them very effectively because it's a different world than it was in 1968 when the first Say book of discipline was put together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I hope I'm not in the minority on that. I I hope that most of the agency folks I know would also embrace that spirit of change and some of the adventure that comes along with it, Um, knowing that it's going to put the church in a unique position and and uncomfortable for some people because we are in this moment where we're discovering who we need to be again and equip ourselves to live into it. Um, And I think agencies can, can help the church do that. Um, again, because we're leaning into the idea of being connectional as opposed to congregational.
0: Do you have hope for the future of the United Methodist Church?
1: I do. Um, and I, I'll pull on the youth event because that was such a recent experience. But at Youth 2023, right, like we're we're in an arena worshiping together with um, – youth from over 250 different churches, Mm -hmm. 45 some different states, five countries. And it was really hard to be in that space and think, oh yeah, this whole thing is doomed. You got a point.
0: (laughs) I mean, it was really hard to think about disaffiliations and shrinking budgets and all that. And not that those weren't realities, but you got into that room And it, it was just a very different story being told
1: there Mm -hmm. about what was happening in our church. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, because of that, I do have hope, right? Mm -hmm. I've got hope because of the leaders that are in place. I've got hope um, because of the clergy who aren't burnt out (laughs) yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And even, and even in some of the ones who have been who have burnt out and, and are trying to figure out how to you know come back into things or, or, need to have ministry look new or different for them. Um, I've got hope because of the young people that are around, um, Mm -hmm. from the parents and the mentors that are helping to raise them and and care about them very much. Um, So I do have hope and and my hope is not grounded in, I think a really foolish idea that I hope the United Methodist Church just keeps looking like it does right now. Um, That's not my hope at all. Mm -hmm. My, My hope is that the United Methodist Church becomes that movement again. Um, and gets to reclaim that as part of its identity, that that we really do make a difference in people's lives and help the cultures that we're a part of bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much for today's conversation. I um you you brought a different energy than some of my other interviews. And I think what I just realized is that there's been you've been speaking in a language of hope this entire time. Oh. And and it only just dawned on me in that last question. Um so thank you for doing that. And I and I imagine it's probably because you're still coming down from the mountaintop that was used 2023. Um and the way Well now that-, that I've had some
1: good night's sleep, maybe.
0: That that part too. <laughs> that part too. <laughs> But I, uh, I, think, I thank you for being one of the leaders, particularly in the agency space, that is daily asking the question, what do youth and young adults need to thrive in our church? Um, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for you and really thankful uh, that you came on the podcast. So thanks so much, my friend.
1: Uh, Derek, thanks a ton. I feel like I talk too much, but that's no, normal for me. No, this is great. It was awesome. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the
0: Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.